We big time. 50,000 views, huh? <laughs> Teron Forte, the eighth grader. Love your motor, young fella. Odds of getting into the NBA. Talent and hard work aren't enough. You also need someone in your corner who knows the system and how to play it for you. Welcome to The First Feature, a No Film School podcast. My name is Ryan Koo, and my first feature is titled Amateur. Amateur is a Netflix original releasing worldwide on April 6th, 2018. And at the time of us recording this, the trailer has come out. Depending on which platform you're viewing it on, it either has hundreds of thousands or millions of views, so it's a really exciting time to kick this off. This podcast, the first feature, will cover different phases of filmmaking, from screenwriting to prep to production to release. Every episode will cover a different phase. And it's meant to be a step-by-step guide to everything I did to get Amateur made. By sharing the lessons I learned along the way, I hope this is something that's helpful to listen to when you're going into production on your first feature, or your second, or your third. Uh, Certainly on my next feature, I'm going to come back and listen to this podcast and make sure I'm not learning the same lesson twice. Episode 1. How do you know which idea to pursue? Or, how I learned to stop worrying and love the basketball. To get started, I'm here with Eric Lors, the latest addition to the No Film School team. He's the managing editor of No Film School, and for those who don't know, I'm the founder and CEO. Uh, Eric, the reason I wanted to kick this whole The First Feature podcast off with you is that you came to us from IFP, an organization that has seen a lot of first features made. Mm -hmm. Um, You've seen a lot of movies go through the process from inception to being finished and released and being some really great successes. Uh, What are some of the films you've seen at IFP that um, have germinated and blossomed and flowered in this world? We're known for certain projects you may have heard of most recently, most successfully, I guess, if you will, uh, for films like Moonlight, uh, Lean on Pete, which is another great one coming out. Um, but those are somewhat a little bit more larger scale as well. So it was always very much a big process of first-time feature filmmakers and filmmakers who may come with a screenplay in development with some international financing in place or maybe no financing in place at all. And they would submit a logline, synopsis, script, the attached talent, intended budget, and kind of what they were looking to get out of this project forum, which is a meetings-based market. Yeah, I mean, that was actually the the first draft of the Amateur screenplay that I had written. That sounds funny to say it. Uh, the first draft of the screenplay for Amateur, I'm not saying the screenplay is, was a, is an Amateur piece of work, uh, mm-hmm. was I, I submitted to... IFP. I don't remember what the program was called then. I think it's changed names mm-hmm. since. But it was. I wrote twenty pages the night before I submitted it, and it was very early in the process. So, um, you know, part of what I want to cover at this in this first episode is uh, that development process and just deciding on what movie you should give an unreasonable amount of your life to try to get made. Um, in my case, let's just talk a little bit about what this movie is. So Amateur is a basketball movie, and it's about Teron Forte, a 14-year-old basketball phenom whose highlight video goes viral. He gets recruited to an elite prep school, and then he is surrounded by older, more physically mature players. He is a child in a man's world, and that was where the original title of the project uh, came from when it was called Manchild. But the idea is that this is a world that places a lot of pressures and expectations on very young shoulders. 
and the way that basketball has changed in the internet era is similar to how the entire world has changed in the internet era, which is websites and videos uh, have given a voice and exposure to these kids at much younger ages where you have somebody who's in seventh grade having 15 million views on their mixtape and being declared to be the next Michael Jordan, but yet they're still in seventh grade. So I I thought it was a really interesting uh, world that I wanted to revisit as a basketball player myself and also just felt that the issues of amateurism, and as we record this, we're in the midst of March Madness with these Mm -hmm. kids generating billions of dollars for uh, everybody but themselves, that it was a timely issue to explore as well. Um, So we'll get into more of why... I wanted to make that film and why I felt like it was worth uh, seven and a half years now of my life mm-hmm. since, since, since the, uh, the beginning of the idea. But that's, that's essentially the question of this podcast. It's actually, what did I do for the last seven and a half years? And what did I learn? And what can I share with you all listening? And hopefully I can say, here are some things to look out for so that when you're going through these phases of production that uh, maybe you can avoid some pitfalls based on my experience. Uh, The movie, as it comes out on April 6th, it's a Netflix original. Uh, It was in the Sundance Screenwriters Lab. It was selected for a couple of IFP programs, Tribeca Grant. It stars Michael Rainey Jr. from the TV show Power, Josh Charles from The Good Wife, Sharon Leal from the films Addicted and Dreamgirls, and Brian White from Ray Donovan and Scandal. And I should not forget Corey Parker Robinson from my favorite television show of all time, The Wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's produced by Jason Michael Berman, who produced The Birth of a Nation, and by Chip Horahan, who produced Frozen River, and Mark Moran. And then we also have uh, NBA All-Stars, Tony Parker and Michael Finley as executive producers. So the question is, when you start as a filmmaker with an idea and no connections, how do you build this thing from scratch? And uh, this is a good example project, I think, because I'm sure you've seen it at IFP. um, Or maybe IFP is sort of the anti what I'm about to say, but there are so many people in the film industry that get their start and break through with their first feature that come from money. Mm -hmm. It's the sort of dirty secret of indie film is that this is a very high-risk industry. Most movies lose money it's very difficult, therefore, to convince anybody to invest money in your idea. And so what you have is a lot of people breaking through via family money or they're the son of a celebrity or you know, they, they just uh, had connections to the industry that most people out there and most of our listeners at No Film School and I myself do not and did not have. So um, that's why something like IFP is really important is because it's open it's yeah. it's a meritocracy. You can just submit it. Yeah, and I, I guess what I'm wondering. You said you had written 20 pages the night before submitting. Uh, so what made you kind of think that now was the time? What it was was it a deadline that kind of pushed you forward to say, okay, I'm going to create something. I'm now going to share it, put it out into the world, start applying to programs. How did you know like that time in probably the spring of 2011 was, you know, you were working solo. I know there's a deadline coming up. Let me do this. Like, what even pushed you to say now is the time? Well, that's what's great about uh, programs like IFP is that <laughs> there is a deadline, right? And so it's it's motivating, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone has X number of pages in Final Draft or whatever program they're using, but what's going to make you hunker down and Should do the there. extra work and hit a deadline and and 
export it and send it to somebody and risk having your head cut off and right. risk somebody telling you this is garbage and mm-hmm. you're not talented and you're never going to make anything in your life. You know, like yeah, that's, yeah, totally. that's the risk essentially that, that comes with putting it out there. So it's much easier to never put it out there. And that's why it's helpful to have deadlines. And IFP is not the only organization doing this. So why don't, uh, if someone's hearing us talk about this and they're thinking, where can I apply or what are the upcoming deadlines that I should know about other than, of course, the ones that we mention on Indie Film Weekly every week, what are some other organizations that are like IFP? Yeah, I think uh, the most closest to to us, which used to be IFP West, was Film Independent, which is our kind of LA equivalent, if you will. Uh, They're really great also having artists development programs, uh, career enhancement programs, if you will. Uh, San Francisco Film Society is another big one. Uh, you should look into like CineReach and kind of different grants, artist programs that they're always kind of opening up for, especially like first-timer, first-feature filmmakers, things of that nature. Uh, may also depend on other funds and grants throughout the year. Yeah, I mean, some of the other ones that supported me were the Tribeca Film Institute, which is part of the Tribeca Film Festival, and Sundance, which is... Well, it's Sundance. Everyone everyone knows Sundance. Uh, But, you know, some of these are are limited geographically. Like if we're talking about film independent and that's in L.A., a lot of people aren't in L.A. So uh, at No Film School, we publish one every quarter. It always is a massive list of grants that Oakley writes up. And it's Mm -hmm. it's pretty massive, but it's always helpful to check in on that time uh, every, you know, quarter to see what's what's coming up. Um, So, uh, you know, I said earlier that a lot of people get their leg up via family money and I don't mean to imply that it's easy to make a movie if you're well off you know because everyone is starting from a different place it's very very difficult to make a movie much less a good one no matter what connections you have or don't um, but it's obviously harder if you're starting from nothing and so I, I want to start from the beginning uh, because it is more instructive for somebody from my position to say these, these are the steps that I took to get from here to there, as opposed to somebody who started further along. And it's also easy for someone to look at where I am now and say, oh, well, you have a Netflix movie coming out and you're the founder of No Film School. But th- when I started No Film School, it was essentially the same place that I was starting on working on this movie, yeah. which is that I was unemployed. I was living in my brother's basement in Durham, North Carolina. And I said, I want to be a filmmaker, mm-hmm. but I don't know anyone in New York. I don't know anyone in LA. I don't have family in the business. Um, so I sort of step-by-step built and did often stumble along the way into this. And, uh, I guess in North Carolina, I think of David Gordon Green and like those those kind of guys, right? Uh, the like North Carolina, was there any kind of like collectives or scene there? Or is it really just from the universities? Yeah. uh, So North Carolina school, the arts is a great school down there. Um, I have never been particularly great at learning in the classroom mm-hmm. myself. Sure. I would rather go out in the real world and fall flat on my face and then learn the lesson that comes with it. That's just something I knew about myself. Um, I went to Middlebury College in Vermont. I took some film classes there. But when it came time to decide, are you going to go commit a bunch sure. of money to a graduate level film program and learn it that way? My decision was, no, let me go out in the world and figure out who I am. So starting No Film School was actually kind of my film school. I felt in North Carolina that I didn't have uh, other people who felt similarly to about movies to me. And I felt like I could have a more intelligent, in-depth conversation about film and how filmmaking was changing and what opportunities were available if I had that conversation on the internet. 
mm-hmm. instead of just where I was. So one of the things that I did want to do was move to New York. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any opportunities there, but essentially what I did is I lied my way into a job at MTV. I, I had just started no film school. I was writing about movies. I got an email from someone and they said, we're hiring graphic designers and we're hiring production assistants and I didn't want to be a production assistant. So I said I was a graphic designer and put on a suit, went up to New York, went into the interview and, you know, I had used Photoshop before. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a total lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once I got the job and I, and I did create some fake material for my, por- for my uh, portfolio. So yeah. it wasn't like I was walking in there with nothing. But when I got the job, then I just did Photoshop training on lynda.com. Uh-huh for $25 for a month. And then I was sitting in between two people who one person had an MFA from Yale and another person had gone to Rhode Island School of Design, like two of the most prestigious design schools out there. Uh, So So the idea of no film school was very much from that practice of, I just taught myself this. And, you know, ultimately if you can get paid to learn while you're doing it on the job, that's better Mm -hmm. than, so, so I, I, Made my way to New York, but it wasn't for film. And I guess after you got the job, were you starting within the next few weeks? Did you kind of like freak out and think, how am I going to prepare for this? Do I need to like, you know, totally. am I overwhelmed and yeah, I'm no, still I, a young guy I, coming I, here? To the I city? totally freaked out. Okay. You know, if someone had looked over my shoulder in the first two weeks of the job, they would have seen that I didn't know any of the Photoshop key okay. stroke commands. I mean, that's... If you're good in, in Photoshop or Avid or anything, mm-hmm. you're not touching the mouse that much. I mean, you're, you're really, you have, all of the keystrokes are muscle memory. And I didn't have any of that. And I didn't know where the, the yeah. you know, all the commands were in the menus. And it's crazy that years later, I, those things are still all second nature. It's like playing a guitar or riding a bike, I guess. And I don't know that I'm going to use those <laughs> muscle memories that much. Um, but yeah, so I was freaked out. But getting, getting to New York was the beginning of that. And then at MTV, I met... Uh, a friend of mine, Zach Lieberman, he also wanted to get into film. And so then we just started talking about what idea would make sense. And I had a leftover thesis idea from college about how uh, hip hop to today was akin to the Western in the days of the spaghetti Western uh, in terms of uh, ownership of property and living by the gun and just some of the same attitudes. And so we decided at the time because internet video was new, Mm -hmm. that this would be a fun thing to experiment with that would not be the kind of TV show you'd see on network TV and that there was a lot of potential for drama on the internet. This is 2007 at the time. So it was really just funny videos on YouTube. There Mm -hmm. weren't ads on YouTube. There wasn't professional content on YouTube. It was just cats on skateboards and people, you know, getting kicked in the balls. So so for us, we were like, I think we can make something better than than that. Did it matter the platform? Was it just going to be a, we will put it on YouTube or upload it to our own, uh, you know, video hosting website or anything like that? Or it was just like, make it, we now have our democracy version of distribution by having yeah. the internet available to us. It was actually a, a subject of serious debate among Zach and I because we, you know, it was uncharted, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't know a lot about what internet video was going to become. Mm-hmm. And so we just put it on our own website and we built the website ourselves. And, um, you know, I think if we were to do it over now, of course, it would be very different. No one's out there launching their own website with the flash video mm-hmm. player that they 
programmed and customized. You know, you would you would want to put it out and share it around and allow it to be as social as possible. But in terms of what we were doing film-wise, I think in some cases being naive and not knowing any better can be a strength because if you just go and do it and it's then it's not the way quote unquote things are supposed to be done you're also not allowing anybody to tell you no and so for us we had this idea and we started just writing the script after work you know we'd we'd wrap up the work day and everyone would go home and we'd get in a conference room and write for a few hours and then on the weekend we'd write together and so on and so forth until we had uh, 12 episodes written and then we just put out a casting call and just used backstage casting and whatever websites were out there. And we literally had no money. The actors were unpaid. We were unpaid. I had a DVX 100 camera lying around, which was actually basically what had happened is in college, I did a music video that won uh, a competition and the grand prize was a Sony VX 2000 camera. And then a couple of years later, a, a better camera came out. So I sold the one that I had won and bought a new one. Mm-hmm. And then I sold it and bought a new one again. And so then by the time that we were doing this web series, I had a DVX 100 and I went and I bought a $150 lens from Adorama and a 35 millimeter adapter, which would allow us to have shallow depth of field from a guy in Brooklyn. And uh, there were just two of us. There was no crew. Like yeah. Zach was holding the boom and I was pulling focus and shooting it and edited it and did the visual effects and he built the website. And so there there was literally no crew and it was extremely DIY, but we almost didn't know that you were supposed to have a film crew. Like if you'd asked us at that point, what does a film producer do? We didn't know that we were producing. And and I guess what was your experience kind of commanding a set and directing for the first time and, and kind of having a partner on that experience with you as well? Because... It was you, you're taking on a very ambitious project and kind of going all into it, and you are the only two who are there. So, kind of, what did you learn about yourself? And some people may try that and kind of be freaked out and say, "This is actually not for me." Uh, maybe I want to kind of go into a more solo, uh, insular experience of writing, but actually being on set for the first time, I believe, and you were the one kind of leading it. No, no, no. Or, or Zach, no. Zach and I Zach, were, were Zach, co yeah. co okay. everything. Mm-hmm. But what what's helpful about having such a small production is there's no it's not necessarily a division of labor it's like you know i'm trying to pull focus on this actor and then i wanted to give him a note but i can't remember what the note was because i had pulled focus wrong you know it's like this sort of thing where there's just so much to do that you're just dividing and conquering and it was all very organic and uh, it worked really well but i I think it especially just to talk about co-directing I think co-writing and co-directing can work really well because the two of us had, had already been there in person for the entire writing process. And so therefore, we'd already discussed a lot of what we might have a disagreement about on set. We'd already decided ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't the issue. The issue was that having full-time day jobs, we could only schedule the actual production of this web series on the occasional weekend. And so what happened is we would shoot and then we really, we would edit and we would do all the Foley and the visual effects and everything ourselves. And we had this terrible hard drive crash and lost all this stuff. But basically, we could only put an episode out once every few months, which is uh, not exactly... It's like the opposite of the current Netflix. You release all the episodes at one night. allow you to binge yeah. watch. This was the opposite of binging. Yeah. You know, this was a sip once every yeah. few months. But These the, episodes were only seven or eight minutes long. Yeah. 
Did that provide any motivation, though, to keep going? Like every couple of months, okay, let's start up again. Well, yeah, Choose well, your weekend. We're going to go back into production for episode three, episode four. We knew that we couldn't do the whole series like that huh. because the way that we had written the 12 episodes, they were going to get larger from a set piece standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we felt that being sort of early pioneers in drama on the internet, that if we got far enough, something would happen. Either we would find financing or we'd find opportunities in the film industry. And that's exactly what happened. We put we put these episodes out there, and after three episodes, I think, we won the Webby Award for Best Drama Series, and we were selected as two of Filmmaker Magazine's 25 New Faces. And we were actually the first people to ever be on that list because of something on the internet, mm-hmm. which I think now is probably more the norm mm-hmm. than not. But but that's how early it was in internet videos. We saw there was an opportunity there. Yeah, it's funny. I was reading that profile of 25 New Faces, and I think you even have a quote about, well, the internet, you know, is kind of coming around with distribution and, you know, 10, 10 years, 11 years uh, removed, it it has, you know, it really has, it has grown quite a bit, but just kind of, you know, assessing that out beforehand. But I think there's a, there's a lesson there, which is when there's, when there are new platforms and forms that there's a gold rush and that there's an opportunity for you. So we, as two guys who had never done this before, we were not competing with everybody else. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was a dearth of dramatic quality content on the internet and we saw an opportunity and you can look at now what is happening with augmented reality and virtual reality and interactive content and there's not as much competition in that space as there is if you're trying to do a traditional feature or tv show so there's a way to become known for something or take advantage of the opportunities with less competition uh, with new technology and new platforms So speaking of that, so what happened is uh, after the the Filmmaker Magazine selection, and thank you to Scott McCauley, we'll owe him forever for that. Mm -hmm. That was such a a great uh, recognition for us. The phone rang and it was United Talent Agency, one of the big five talent agencies. But so what happened is we didn't ultimately find financing for this DIY web series. Uh, It was... I should now describe it now that we've been talking about it for a while. So it was a black and white urban Western. We essentially shot New York City as if it were an alternate universe. And it was very noirish and high contrast. And guys are walking around in dusters with pistols on their hip. I mean, it sounds absurd. And at times it was, but at times it also worked. And I think that that was what Zach and I look back fondly at is that we're able to say, that part, that, that's pretty good. Like, mm-hmm. this should have been a really amateurish, terrible home video. Mm-hmm. And the storytelling, you know, sometimes it's pretty good. Yeah. Considering it's 10 years ago, I think most filmmakers would look back to something that they made on no budget 10 years ago and say, want to divorce themselves from it. But there are parts of it that I still really like. And so essentially the opportunity that came our way was not financing for the full, for the next eight episodes, right? We had gotten recognition. We'd won an award. An agent had called us. And uh, that's something that I always tell people about agents, too, because everyone says, you know, do I need an agent to get this made? Do I need a manager? And the answer is probably no. The point at which you need an agent is when the agents are calling you. Like you need to do something on your own, find a way to do something that's doable with resources that you have, people you know, locations you have access to that 
there's an entire industry of people out there looking for content and looking for new voices and new talent. And if you can put something out there, then they will call you. And that's the point at which you need an agent because you're talking about future opportunities for more money. And if you just send query letters to agents and managers, but you haven't done anything yet, there's not really anything that, I mean, just from their perspective, what are they going to do with that? You literally created your reel and then they came knocking on your door. Exactly. It was yeah. a calling card. Yeah. We always said it was a calling card. And if we didn't, if we weren't able to finish it, then so be it. But at least it would get our foot in the door. And this is where I think in retrospect, the problem with having only done a few episodes of something is that it's very easy after winning an award that quickly to try to make a giant leap. And we were interested in new forms, as I've said, so we didn't just want to do a web series. We didn't just want to finish uh, The West Side, which, again, it's an urban Western, and most of the money in the internet, uh, in internet video at the time, was branded content. Right. So we couldn't have our guy walking down the street in black and white, you know, with a Coca-Cola right. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. driving a Volvo. So there, were, there weren't really any monetization opportunities, but... We so we wanted to do something new. Right. Was and there an official like conclusion to it, or it was just kind of? Unfortunately, yeah. you, you can still go to the website. You okay. can still watch these episodes. It's at thewestside.tv, and I think it still just says on hiatus, which it's accurate. It's accurate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a ten-year hiatus. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, maybe one day. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll see. Sure, sure. So, so we wanted to to make something that would similarly capitalize on the opportunities that were out there. And web series was one thing. Uh, I think you've seen a lot of great web series in the years since go from being a web series to a traditional TV show, like Insecure, Mm -hmm. like High Maintenance. Mm -hmm. Um, We were earlier than those shows, but our show was also not, I don't think it was anywhere near mainstream uh, enough or, you know, it's basically like an experiment. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that it would have supported uh, longer yeah. and, and run times. In 2008, too, were there, I'm trying to think of series that did exist then, were the, was the idea of like something behind a paywall even a concept back then, really? You know, because like uh, high maintenance going from its own independent web series to being on Vimeo on demand to then going to HBO, was there even ever an idea of we could charge? Two ninety nine an episode for you know was that really a concept? People thing? people were experimenting. Okay. I don't think that there was much that was successful at that time, and that was one of the reasons we didn't put it on YouTube. Is that once they started monetizing content, it just felt strange to to have there be this you know full color banner ad or some some strangely off topic ad before this more curated black and white experience that we'd mm-hmm. created on our website. So. We tried to, to, to move on to something that was, you know, transmedia was the buzzword of the day. And it wasn't a word that we were necessarily a fan of because, you know, what happens, for example, with phones is it's, oh, now it's a camera phone or now it's a smartphone, but then ultimately they're just phones again. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with transmedia. Everyone's talking about, oh, you can, you can have this thing on your phone and then, you know, it interacts with what's going on on TV and then you go in the real world and interact with it that way and extend the story. And for us, it was like, yes, but that's already been a part of our lives. We just didn't have this word for it. Mm-hmm. 
the presidential election is trans media. You watch the debate on TV and then you go pull a lever and then, you know, it's yeah. like we fundamentally understand what's going on here. But there are a lot of opportunities from a storytelling standpoint. And for us, the question is, what's a better way to tell a story that uses these new mediums? And so we came up with a murder mystery on a subway. Essentially, it was a 21st century version of Clue, but it was interactive and you could be your own detective. And I'll try to just compress this stretch of our, our, our lives down. But essentially, just because there are buzzwords out there doesn't necessarily mean that there's funding, that there's a mandate for production companies to make material. So I think if you look at something now like HBO's Mosaic, it's actually coming out and there's a platform and people are watching it on their iPads and it's also an HBO show. And if you go back eight to 10 years ago, everyone was interested in it from a keyword standpoint, right? You want to bring in the creatives and hear what the next generation of ideas is, but no one necessarily had a mandate to make it. Uh, but, But to give some lessons and takeaways from what I learned from that experience was we learned how to pitch. And unfortunately, the way that we learned how to pitch was very much by being thrown into the fire. Our, we had 18 pitches in three days. Our first pitch was on the lot at Warner Brothers. It, like I almost parked in George Clooney's spot yeah. until I realized that G. Clooney meant not not you. No, you know, that, no, was, no. that was you don't park here. This is like the, what it actually meant. Probably the Ocean's uh, movies time. Or This is when he was at Warner Brothers. I think he's since moved uh, to Sony with his company, okay. if I'm correct. But that's what that was valuable for was let's go learn about the industry. We'll be in Hollywood. We'll be at a major agency. We'll pitch. And then just by gauging that process, we'll get much better at pitching. And we wanted to get the the project made. And we even went and spent a good deal of time writing the full script. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, an interactive script is very different from a linear script. You have to consider all sorts of possibilities and branching narratives and simultaneous occurrences. And so it was a lot to consider and it was a really valuable experience for us. And we still have that script and it may see the light of day because the timing is better. And I guess when you were pitching it, did you, was part of that process getting the story across, but then also how we're going to do it and like how high concept is that and we need this, this and this, you know, did you kind of learn more about the project yourself by describing it and talking about it with other people and then maybe refine it based on those discussions. Definitely. I mean, one of the ways you refine things is when executives' eyes just start glazing over, you're like, oh, okay, this part's not so... Mm -hmm. But um, we at MTV had been part of an online concert experience, uh, which was we had developed, but this was something that never, unfortunately, saw the light of day, we developed a way to watch a video of a concert and it would allow you to switch between different camera angles in real time. You could essentially edit your own music video. Mm-hmm. And um, so technologically, we knew it was possible. Mm-hmm. I was the lead designer on that using my my month of Photoshop training. Mm-hmm. And Zach was the, one of the lead producers on it. So we knew that going into Pitch It, we had a track record that it wasn't just a pipe dream. You right. know, we could point to that and say, yes, this is possible technologically. And we know the developers and we know, and we've done it. We've right. even load tested it, but it got caught up in a um, kind of an acquisition, uh, no man's land between MTV. And then they, they merged with Rhapsody, the music service. And there was all sorts of stuff where you as the workers are just caught kind of saying, do we get to put this out there? Or yeah. is this just something we worked on for months and never sees the light of day? 
so we were pitching that. You know, we even went through some some uh, business accelerator programs, and we went to some pitch competitions. And what was really interesting about it was, I think you learn more from failure than you do from success. If you succeed at something, you're like, yes, I was right. Just do it again. You can just <laughs> repeat that, and maybe it'll come by twice. Right. And we, you know, we didn't. It was it was great to win the Webby Award and to get recognition for these for our, our web series. But I don't think we learned as much as we could have if we'd have been through a, a longer cycle. And the point that we really learned a lot was when we went to a pitch competition and first prize was 6,000 euros and second prize was nothing. Mm-hmm. And we, we came away with that nothing. But that third prize was really <laughs> incredible. Yeah, yeah, third prize was 4,000 euros. Yeah, it's a really weird uh, structure. Odd. Don't vote for us too much, but yeah. <laughs> um, so the night that we lost this competition, I remember just taking stock of myself and what I wanted to do and what kind of projects I wanted to make. And at the time, No Film School was just a personal blog. And I wrote that night in a post that's still live in October 2009 called Reflections on the Pixel Pitch and the Transmedia Market. Um, You know, I, I just, I had to write something and I needed to figure out what I wanted to do. And that was the moment that I decided to start No Film School as what it is today. You know, instead of just dilly-dallying and occasionally posting a blog post, like, let me see what I can do. Can I create a community for independent creatives? Can I talk about film and how film's changing and what you need to know and um, post something every day? So it was losing that competition that led me to do that. And it was also losing that competition that led me to start thinking about what is a topic that I want to make a movie about that I really care about? And this is where we get into... How do I know what first feature to make? Because not getting Third Rail, the transmedia project made, not getting it made, it felt like losing twice because we wrote it as something that was commercial and as something that we wrote it to get it made. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get it made. I came back and I said, but it's not even really that personal to me. It was written to be entertaining. It was written to be fun and pulpy. But it wasn't at its core something that I felt extremely passionate about Topically. Right. You were creating it almost for the market, for the people that you're kind of imagining them to be, whoever they may be. Exactly. So I came back from that, and the popular saying is, write what you know. And I've always been incredibly passionate about basketball. And I think that's a good thing to think about for everybody in their own lives. It's what is the thing that you're unreasonable about? What is the thing that speaks to you more than it does to your friends? That your friends are like, meh, Mm -hmm. but that you really care Mm -hmm. about. And for me, that was basketball. I had a very particular experience. I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, where basketball is literally right in between Duke and UNC. And so I grew up playing high school basketball. But then what happened later in life is that I got injured a lot. And the saying, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, is certainly true there where... If your friends come by and they're like, hey, can I borrow your basketball? We want to go play. You, you yeah. miss it a lot more yeah. than if you actually were able to play the whole time. So, Was that actually maybe a career uh, 
ambition of yours to go into like professional play or you know or no, even no like, not even as no. a kid though were you still kind of like <laughs> well i'm you, sure you know what i mean like you're kind of like oh I'll play ball yeah i mean when you're Still 10 making. if you make one shot you probably you're like, like okay oh, i think i can be the next. get that nike contract yeah. Yeah, yeah but no i mean i'm i'm 511 you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not necessarily uh if i was 611 definitely in north carolina have mugsy bugs you that's know? true let's not forget the hornets no excuse. back in the day it's no excuse but no i mean actually that's actually a, a great point is that in my hometown in durham there were really high level players you know tracy mcgrady is playing in my hometown mm-hmm. amari stoudemire played in durham John Wall played in the Triangle in Raleigh. So you know you're not going to be a professional when you're on the court with somebody who is. <laughs> you right. know okay. very yeah, quickly. Yeah. But to even that, have that experience, I mean, that's pretty yeah. rare. Yeah. Uh, and in some cases, we wouldn't play those guys, but we'd play a team that played them okay. and, and get killed. You know? yeah, so, yeah. They so were the monsters exactly. of that era. <laughs> I, I knew how far off I was from uh, from going pro at, at basketball, but at I wanted to go pro as a storyteller. Sure, you know, I wanted sure, to sure. be a professional filmmaker, right. um, which is why I chose the title amateur. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but so that was that was something that I knew just based on life experience. This is something that I care about to an unreasonable degree. So let me choose that as a topic and dive in on it because I do have personal experience with it, and I'm also from a place that I don't think has been represented on film, right? Which is in basket in sports movies, you've seen uh, kind of like the more white bread approach from like Hoosiers, right? Mm-hmm. Or you've seen the opposite, which is like the inner city above the rim approach. Mm-hmm. And growing up in Durham, and I was looking around saying these are small parochial schools that are basketball powerhouses. They're not very well known schools. They're not very large, but they're top ranked in the country. Yeah. And you have these kids that are incredible. That's got to be a lot of pressure on these kids. And then as I was getting into filmmaking a decade later, the internet changed everything. And all of a sudden the pressure was on fourth graders. Yeah. Imagine being nationally ranked yeah. when you're in fourth grade. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're being set up to potentially be a failure. If, modify everyone at all. Yeah, times. exactly. Yeah. But that, but that's the race. That's yeah. the race. As soon as Michael Jordan signed his first shoe contract and it, and it became such a successful brand, the race became to find the next Michael Jordan younger and younger. Mm-hmm. And so that was a dramatically interesting uh, dichotomy, which is that you're so young and you might not have much in your life yourself, but you're being promised and told and being talked up as, as a potential multi-millionaire. Yeah. Just in case you happen to lose interest when you turn 14 or 15 about where you want your life to go. But yeah. And it's also, so that, so that was, you know, th- that was one of the, the approaches is what are you passionate about? What do you feel that's different from someone else that's going to help you get your movie made? Um, And then what's specific about it? So for me, it was where I was from. And also, I think if you look at what movies have been made in the past, Quentin Tarantino was an advisor at at my screenwriter's lab. But there was something that he'd said years earlier that I was actually thinking of when I was thinking about making a basketball movie. And that is he had talked about Reservoir Dogs and said that you can't, with your first feature, go out there and try to make something that's going to stand up there with The Godfather. You can't choose this larger genre of dramas or whatever it may be where they're just all-time great films. So he looked at the heist subgenre and thought that he had something specific in there with Reservoir Dogs, which is essentially a heist film 
that all takes place after the heist. It's mm-hmm. the aftermath. And for me, I looked around at basketball movies and I said, well, this is a genre where I think there's an opportunity to do something. And were there some that you actually were like, okay, these are good examples, but I need to kind of clear these from my mind. Like, I'm not trying to make the narrative hoop dreams or blue chips, a new version, you know. Uh, were there some that you were like, okay, I do respect these being a fan of film and basketball, but this needs to be so oh, totally yeah. my own thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are basketball movies that I love. I've yeah. probably seen White Men Can't Jump as much as yeah. any movie out there. And um, He Got Game is great. Hoop, yeah, yeah. hoop Dreams is an all-time documentary. Uh, you know, Hoosiers for what it is, it's, you yeah, know, it's, it's, an insp- yeah. it's an inspirational tale. Yeah. Like, it's not that, that there were bad movies in the genre, but it, it was, for me as somebody who's, who likes independent films and character studies, there's not something in the basketball genre that I felt like what represented that. It mm-hmm. didn't have the perspective that I wanted to bring to it. So by zeroing in on something more specific, then I think you have an opportunity as a filmmaker to do something as opposed to if you're going to be competing with the bigger budgeted movies from more experienced people, you need the specificity to find an in. So I think when it comes to evaluating what movie might be good to try to make as your first movie, there are three questions. There are three whys. And that is, why is this different? Why are you the one to tell it? And why now? Why is it different? Why are you the one to tell it? And why now? So for my film, we just talked about why it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly even within the, the specific perspe- perspective, the internet had changed things and the youth of the kid was something that we had never seen on film before. Why am I the one to tell it? Well, I'm not the one to get you uh, a driving down the lane dunk with two seconds on the shot clock, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. that guy, but I have been a player all my life. Right. And, uh, you know, I have had always a belief that I know basketball yeah. better, better than I can play it. Mm-hmm. So my, my body may not be able to do these things, but uh, I knew the sport and I would like yeah. to be able to uh, present some knowledge of that through film. Um, and also just where I'm from, you know, having been around these high level players and being from a, a part of the country that's basketball crazy, I knew that there, there would be an authenticity that I could bring to it. And on top of that, with the current debate about academics versus athletics and the whole definition of a student athlete, both of my parents have their PhDs. Mm. I'm from an academic background and I've been to over a hundred UNC games. Mm. My dad's a season ticket holder. He's a professor at UNC grad school. So I grew up right in the middle of, you know, two of the most famous schools that participate in the most famous rivalry, playing basketball in that town, going to UNC games my entire life, and then also having a whole uh, academic perspective around me, but right in the middle of big time athletics. So that was why I felt that I was the one to tell it. And then the third question is, why now? Why, why is this story, right. why couldn't you make this 10 years ago or tw- 10 years well, from now? Yeah. And so, of course, it was the internet and that being an internet native with, uh, I guess I'm not actually young enough to be an internet native. No, I, think but I'm, I think I'm like on the millennial yeah, yeah, cusp. Yeah. But, but 
having grown to a film school and, and witnessed social media and all the way that these things have changed the world, I, you know, I wanted to present the way that that had changed um, amateur youth, mm-hmm. grassroots, high school, middle school, basketball. And I also just felt that there is an injustice in our society in plain sight that no one had made a film about and engaged with in a serious manner and that one and done and some of the rules about amateurism and the definition of student athlete and all these things were ripe for a re-examination and a change. And thankfully, uh, with the ongoing FBI investigation Mm -hmm. into corruption in college basketball and with assistant coaches being arrested and with people who were thought to be Hall of Famer lock head coaches losing their jobs Mm -hmm. and with FBI wiretaps Mm -hmm. getting out there. Um, Thankfully, the timing couldn't be better. And uh, I guess I can't really take credit for that. I mean, it took me seven and a half years to make this movie, so I was just waiting for the right time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I guess also it's kind of interesting in hearing your story and the origins of your career as well as – a lot of filmmakers will say, oh, let me do two or three shorts, you know, and kind of put that. Was that ever you, – you almost started so ambitiously with let's do a series, you know, and then let's kind of pitch a transmedia project. And now I'm really interested in making my first feature. Were, were there any other questions of, oh, let me do a short. Let me su- submit to some festivals. Let's see if that gets some traction. Maybe I'll do another one. I mean, we'll we'll see where it goes. Then maybe I can start building an audience with the shorts and then continue on and get that experience under my belt. Uh, you were going for some pretty – uh, hefty projects and ambitions. It sounds like going from Certainly. series to transmedia. And that's, why, and that's why it took so to long. The <laughs> in all of yeah. these cases, I would yeah. have definitely liked to have been more prolific. But yes, uh, I made a short, mm-hmm. and I think what's interesting is if you go out there and you look at IMDb for the feature, it says this feature is based on the short amateur, which is not true. It came after, right? Okay, I, after I've been writing yeah. exactly. I've been yeah. writing the the feature for a while, and then I decided to go make a short, but. This episode's probably getting long enough, sure. and and for those of you listening, I apologize. My my intent is not to sit here and, and go through my career retrospective, but I think we have to get <laughs> up to the present, and then in order to be able to talk more about craft, and and one of the things that we will talk more about is that decision to do a short and how we marketed it and how we got it out there in the world and what it allowed us to do in terms of making a feature because it was helpful in ways that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate, and. Um, you know, it definitely served its purpose in addition to being something that you just get experience directing. You get on-set reps. You work with crew members that you might want to hire on your first feature. For example, Amateur, the short, is shot by Greg Wilson. It was his first short. It was my first short. And we went on to go take that strong relationship to the feature, it being my first feature and his first feature. So we'll talk about that on the next episode. And it's going to be interesting because I think in many ways for amateur, I did things out of order. I wrote a screenplay, I ran a Kickstarter, then I made a short, then I made the feature. And for most people, the short probably comes earlier in the process. So let's just let's just talk about it the way that most people should do it, because I don't know that uh, mine is as instructive in order. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. Good. Cool. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm looking so, forward so to it. So we got through we got through me. Let's get to the movie. If you're listening to this and you have any questions about the process, 
uh, just email them to us. And then at the end, as a last episode, we'll just do a Q&A. So we set up a new email address. It's firstfeature at nofilmschool.com. And we will compile them and then get back to you with an with a extra episode. You can find this and all of the episodes of the No Film School podcast at nofilmschool.com slash podcasts. You can find all of the episodes of the first feature at nofilmschool.com slash first feature. And make sure you're subscribed to all of our podcasts in your app of choice. Uh, please rate us. And we have more interviews with other people that aren't me and whose movies have actually come out. Those are pretty good, too. Yeah. Those are pretty yeah. good. The movies and the interviews. But, at, you know, there won't be many episodes. This movie's coming out April 6th. So That's true. It's coming out, and by the time some of you are listening to this, it might already be out. How cool that would be if somebody listens to all the episodes, though, and then watches the movie. Well, I th- yeah. I don't think we can put the episodes out quickly enough. Okay, that. okay. I mean, just, yeah, <laughs> I'm just, just brainstorming as it's coming to me. I'm like, wow, okay. Listen. At a certain point in the podcast, we'll just say, okay. Pause uh, we're here, gonna, watch gonna, <laughs> the film, <laughs> yeah. come back. We're going to assume you've you've seen it at this point because we're going to get into spoilers. I okay. Guess. But because we've been talking about the short and screenwriting and Kickstarter and those things first, I, I th- don't think we'll be at that point for a while. Uh, thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>